0: To Scene is Forgetting Conversations on Contemporary Art and Culture in Los Angeles and Beyond. Dan Cameron is the guest on today's show. It was a highly educational and inspirational conversation. I haven't had one like this in a very long time. If you don't know who Dan is, you should look him up right away. He's been the curator of multiple biannuals, triannuals, he started Prospect. Uh, Juan in New Orleans, he was a curator at the New Museum, he worked at Orange County Museum, he has been all over the place, and he is a wealth of knowledge. It is one of those conversations where we talk about everything that ranges from critical writing becoming a function of the market, approaches to curating, and his intense love of music. He's just so knowledgeable on so many fronts, and I really value his opinion and his friendship. I've known him for about ten years now. Uh, we met originally at SVA when I was going to school there. He was a teacher. There's this funny story that I don't bring up in the actual conversation. Dan had essentially allowed the the year before us to curate, or he curated a a show of the the seniors in David's Warner Gallery, and it was there into the year. It was sort of a culmination of like what they were going to do at the end. So our year was like, "Oh, Dan, please put us in David's Werner Gallery." And he wasn't going to be a product of the market and do the exact same thing that he'd done the year before. And it wasn't about like getting people commercial exposure. And by the time this was in our my graduating year it was two thousand seven of SVA, uh, the market had turned. So they weren't pulling people out of grad schools like they were before, and everybody was sort of panicking in this really crazy way. So they needed it, or they thought they needed it, and wanted it badly to be put into this commercial realm and be exposed to individuals who they thought were gonna actually buy the work. So instead of doing that, I proposed, we do a show that was outside of New York and like branch out and get away from this market-based or this market-centric approach to exposing our work to people. And I said, why don't we do a traveling show and we get it into the regions where it isn't seen. And you get to see young artists coming out of this school, in In areas that normally they wouldn't see it, so we went to St Louis and we and Dan hooked us up with a space there uh, Boots gallery, which was running there, and then we went to uh, Texas and we went to uh, Fine Silver Gallery and he hooked us up with a space there and then we went to New Orleans with Arthur Roger Gallery and he hooked us up with a space there and I said, Dan, if I put the show together and we sort of organized logistically, will you come to each show if I bought you a plane ticket and a man to his word. He came to every single opening that we had in each one of those cities and flew out in between like getting ready for prospect new Orleans. And I'm sort of a naive kid, like thinking, Oh, I didn't realize how much was on his plate at the time, but he put all this effort into being there and supporting us at each one of those things when it was not easy and really pushed for us to, to be something more than what we were just in school. So I really appreciate that from him. And it's something that I, have not forgotten and he was one of the first people I say this like I feel like I say it every every episode you're one of the first people I thought about like bringing on the show but like really all of these people who have been on have made a difference in sort of my life and what I've been thinking about with making work so it's important to like bring them to light early on so I can sort of have these conversations without further ado here's Dan Yeah, it was really good. I really, I
1: thought it was beautiful. It was I mean, really it kind int- of fell apart at a certain point, but yeah, and
0: some of the uh, the back and forth wasn't necessary at some points in like the storyline, but it was really good. I lo- I was just, just listening to part of
1: Smile because I have I keep my iTunes on shuffle permanently.
0: You do, so you didn't, you never know
1: exactly. Never know what the go. next song is going to be. I'm going to move your mic up, just and sure enough, um, the uh, children's song from Smile came on, and I was just. Listening to the production and the way he's got
0: dozens he's a, he's of voices amazing, right?
1: and placing them all into yeah, it's like Phil Spector, but light years more advanced in yeah. terms of sophistication of of sonic. I don't, I, you know, he's he was really a genius. And so still is.
0: I I was actually going to bring this up, but you're a big how uh, a music fanatic like
1: you, big time, really huge. Well, I used to make music. That's why. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. In the last half of the 80s, I had a band called Infra We're not recording this, right? I'm just, ha- I'm just well, like- we actually, we are recording, <laughs> but I can, I can cut it out if we need to. But this is, this is highly interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I reached a certain point where I thought, okay, what happened was,
0: do I, you want to record? Like, can we talk about this? I'm fine. Whatever you want to yeah, talk about. Yeah. I would about. love to. This is This is, is
1: it. just sort of spontaneous. We just sort of, yeah. This is went it. Sideways into it. Um, yeah, yeah. So all I wanted was to, quit my day job and which was what well uh, let's see at that time i was the public affair i was assistant director for public affairs for the gray art gallery Um, the nyu museum what year was this i joined in mid 82 no early 82 so i was there for about two years and then uh as i saw 1984 approaching you know the date. The, you were know, <laughs> <laughs> like, years. I gotta get the hell out. I've got, yeah, I was like, I can't be a prisoner in a in a bureaucratic, yeah, you know, a bureaucratic institution anymore. I've got to find a way to get out of it. So I had already done a couple of exhibitions, and including the Extended Sensibilities, and uh, Richard Martin, who was at that time the editor editor of P- Arts Magazine, had read a couple things I'd written, and basically said, you know, I can guarantee you. Um, placement of a feature article every month if you'd like to write. Well, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, it meant $375 a month. But it was enough money to be able to... Well, it was enough money, you know, with the, I don't know, whatever, 1200 I had in the, saved up in the bank over right. a few years. Uh, we are talking about the early 80s. <laughs> rent rent, rent stability in New York City. At and the I country. had just won a, f- a, a, a fight, a legal fight with my landlord. So you could... Yeah. I actually had six months of free rent, so, like sailing into So the 84. timing worked out perfectly. It did. I could live on little. You know, it was like, yeah, I mean, everybody knows it. You know, it's like brown rice and lentils yes. <laughs> for a long Top time. Top ramen. And then we have it. I would never do ramen. I just, I don't, I, mean, I was never really processed foods. Oh, no, I okay. I don't, I don't, I don't really like to eat things that. Clean living. I don't know what it was. I mean, I back think in '84. Well, I had a hold I had a hold hippie mentality about food. Where if it's like, if I can go to the local vegetable stand, then why would you go buy processed food? Why about? would I find something in an aluminum packet? Well, New York. Yeah, that's got all that crap in it. New York's
0: great like that though too. At that time too, you could find the local produce. Like I'm from Iowa. When I was growing up as a kid, everything was canned. Anyway, there's no fresh markets for food anyway, even though it's being... Iowa. Where, where it's being grown, <laughs> exactly. right? So
1: like we grew up, it's Hamburger Helper because you didn't know any different. Well, I grew up in Hamburger Helper too. <laughs> <laughs> no, but something's changed my... It was probably going to Bennington College that changed my thinking about food and having oh, teachers. Oh, that's where you did uh, undergrad or what? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that, that's where my degree is from. Where I'm are you originally Bennington from? College. I'm from the Adirondacks. I'm from a really small town called Hudson Falls, okay. New York. That's on the Hudson River, 220-something miles north of New York. Yeah, I do. I've actually been through there. Yeah. yeah. Route 4 goes through my hometown. Yeah, I used to. I was doing some photography stuff a long time ago and went up through Hudson Falls.
0: Oh, great. It was really beautiful.
1: Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's um. You know, it's, it's it's been hit hard by the... Economic downturn and everything else, industry moving out of the upstate. There's a lot of small factories in that area when I was growing up, and most of them are, are shut down now. Yeah. So there's not much of an infrastructure. But so, yeah, so I went to Bennington College and then had teachers, you know, basically role models, people I really looked up to some of whom were really very interested in issues of nutrition. And I guess because I come, my dad's an Iowa, and I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Where's yeah, he yeah. from? He's from Bloomfield in the southeast corner. Yeah, of the east the, side. The, uh, near you, Opelousa.
0: I don't know if you know this, but the east side and the west side don't know each other. Okay, I
1: didn't know that. Yeah, because they're so far.
0: Well, I, I grew up uh, 30 minutes away from another town, this town called Carroll, Iowa. And I can count on one hand how many times I was there in my life. Wow. You just don't. The idea of driving a half an hour to get anywhere, is it blows your mind. So nobody would do it. And, and it, that's the minimum amount of time it well, takes to get anywhere. Not, it's like 40 minutes I give myself anywhere in L.A. And it's just open plane. There's no It's, it's completely no open. Plane. I think part of the issue with that, too, is just a, it's a perception because you can drive for 20 minutes and not see another car. And it's sort of this, it's this desolate
1: nature of like just living out there in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's the way it is. So wait, music. So one of the decisions I made when I decided to leave the world of nine to five behind was that, you know, the most important thing was to get my curatorial career advanced, my, my get more work. Yeah. You have time to develop projects. Um, I also wanted to write and I wanted to write two or three you know, features a month if I could just get get myself in flash art, get myself in art. Why did you want to write?
0: Was it going to expand your curatorial practice or your understanding of the work? What was the impetus?
1: Well, writing had driven my interest in art from what I would say sort of a typical teenage adolescent fascination with Miro or Dali or something like that into a deeper philosophical um, way of grasping how art works and why it's made and why we give it importance. In fact, I did a, in order to get out of Bennington College, if you're an undergraduate in liberal arts, which almost everyone is, uh, you have to write a dissertation. And so my dissertation was actually on theories of audience ship, of spectatorship in sort of 20th century. Uh, aesthetics and literary criticism. Wow! So by that time, I was already reading, you know, everyone from Michael Fried or you know Clement Ehrenberg to you know Smithson. Were I you mean, Robert inter- Smithson's writings were really starting to explode in the early seventies, uh, even though he was dead by the time I got to college, and the um, collected writings weren't published until nineteen eighty. I would go down to Williams College and like Xerox, all these old articles from Robert Smithson, and it was totally blowing my mind. How were so, you introduced to that, though? Because I had a teacher at Bennington who uh, gave me a tutorial in writings by sculptors. That was his starting point. That's he actually... Great. That's fantastic. Yeah, Sidney Tillam was his name. He's actually a known person. He was a, I would sort of say, a, a fallen Greenbergian. Yeah. He had started off very much besotted with ideas about uh, picture plane and, (laughs) and, you know, the surface and and line. And by the time he was my teacher, he was making paintings about American history. He had literally gone the other. And then by the time he died, uh, say 15, 20 years later, he was making hard edge abstraction. (laughs) He He was was all over the place. He was all over the place. And um, not what I would say an entirely positive influence because he created one of those, uh, how can I say it, authoritarian roadblocks that I one experiences from time to time in life where we found ourselves diverging in terms of our point of view during the class. And then I wrote a dissertation, I wrote a paper for the end of the class that was about 45 pages long. And he, uh, Bennington College doesn't have a grade system, it has a pass-fail system. Yeah. So you, you either pass you fail and you get a comment. And I got a six-page, single-spaced comment. comment and a fail. Really? And fa- Yes, he failed me for my course. Because you didn't agree with his philosophy on... I just disturbed his inner ecology <laughs> to such a degree that he went to a certain length to try to... I don't know. I mean, what he did was so preposterous because I took it to the dean of studies. Uh, and I said, you know, his name was Ricky Blake. And I was like, Ricky, <laughs> doesn't this sound, seem unusual to you that a teacher would take the time to write six double-spaced pages? And of, then fail somebody. And then fail somebody. Like, it's not like I didn't do the work. And it's not work. like it
0: wasn't relevant because he wrote the six pages to actually have a conversation with you.
1: I, apparently. <laughs> apparently. So, uh, you know, that was an interesting... So, so what happened
0: out of that? Did you pass? Uh, Did course. the dean pass Did, you? The
1: or? dean, he wasn't... The way it was structured was he couldn't overrule, but so he basically called Sidney Tillman to his office, and he said, this is unacceptable. Right. You need to change this student's uh, grade from, from fail to pass. And he did, and we never spoke again. You know, we just studiously ignore each other. But he, other he led you on a path moment.
0: of... Well, that's what happened. He, he
1: introduced me to the idea that criticism or theories about art or, or, or exciting writing about art isn't just written by... Academics it's not just written by eggheads that artists in the field are producing text they're producing Linguistic challenges to certain conventions about the ways we look at art and that's really exciting if you follow it And of course that was you know October was just getting started right then, so it was a very fertile time to look into this kind of uh, crossroads between artistic practice and the development of critical discourse. So I wanted to publish because I wanted to exercise my thinking about art in a way that would produce a text that would not just articulate or better articulate what it was I was thinking, but would also give the reader a chance to respond.
0: Do, Do you think today that artists interact in the same way with writing and sort of like talking about theory and stuff that
1: they did at that time or not? I don't see as much of it, no. I think what's happened is, is it's been replaced with a certain more jargonistic uh, attitude about writing, which is produced in a sort of a thickly clotted kind of gumbo of, of, of words and phrases and buzzwords. And I don't think there's really an expectation that, it's, that A, people are going to read it, or that B, if they do read it, that it's going to move the needle Well, the,
0: It's like a critical discourse that really doesn't matter. I mean, today, when they're when you're discussing these things, they really don't have the intention to like get beyond sort of a, a face value of like what they're writing
1: about. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right, and I think that too much a lot of critical writing now has become a function of the market as well. I think that people don't really read Art Forum to follow debates between absolutely not between Rob Store and Oakley and Weezer. I mean, I think that was maybe the last great shootout that I can remember. That took place in the features pages and then the letters to the editors pages of Art Forum, where the art world was following and there was this strong argument about issues and principles. I and would, and I that would, was about 10 years ago, and I don't, I've never seen anything well, like that. Still, I would even so.
0: suggest that people looking at it today who are new to looking at it probably don't even realize that was taking place.
1: I mean, at the time?
0: No, I mean, today. Like, if an artist goes and picks up this book and they're born in uh, the year 2000, they don't understand that that was a place for critical discourse or like a, a, a a conflict of interest where it could be discussed and put into print and, and have that conversation. The art forum today is more like I go through and look at the ads and see what's happening. That's what everybody does. You know what I mean? Like the, 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 the content isn't necessarily in the writing for, well, there is, that's the wrong, that's not the correct way to say it. The content isn't in that uh, letter, uh, letters to the editor and everything.
1: No. And invariably the most interesting critical essays that you can find in art forum and you know they're pl- certainly out there and plentiful. Are not about art. They're usually about something else, about cinema, about film f- and film, popular yeah, yeah. culture, you know, hip hop. You know, it can be about anything. But it's not that there aren't good writers about art. It's just that I think that the connection, which was so intense in the seventies and into the eighties, between critical writing and artistic production, that's broken. That, that that's not there anymore. It will actually need to be. Rebuild post bubble.
0: So, what do you think? Where does it? How does it happen?
1: How does that rebuild happen? Yeah. Well, like, where does it start? Well, I think we're in a sort of a state of of um, an intoxicated frenzy that has to do over the market. Over the market. I think it's completely um, assumed control over not just people's activities, but about people's mindset. You know, it's harder and harder to even, I mean, in my field, in curatorial practice, it's very hard to talk about um, different viewpoints or approaches to how one curates or thinks about an exhibition, because I think it's more or less assumed that everyone is sort of like just out for themselves and on their own, and that critical idea or sort of curatorial ideas, pardon me, don't meet, they don't have a common ground where they meet in the discourse.
0: Uh, it's highly interesting, but like I, I think you're absolutely correct.
1: Like if you go, let's go back to like Paul Schimmel at at MoCA when he did Helter Skelter. That was a museum exhibition of contemporary art from Southern California that had massive repercussions, not just throughout the American art world, or certainly not just in California, but throughout the world. I mean, people looked at that as a as an exemplary case of you know a museum doing what it's supposed to do, which is like look at the art that's being made in its immediate environs and try to make sense out of it, try to put it together in a way that gives it shape and form and also I think allowing for sort of artists here to see themselves in a way that no one had ever depicted them before, it kind of brought it together and I think that introduced Los Angeles art to the world, it introduced Mike Kelly and Absolutely. Paul McCarthy and, yeah. you know, and, and, and I think that that would never happen today Well, this it's, is- Im- it's impossible for a contemporary art exhibition to have the impact that Helter Skelter had. Really? Absolutely. There's no, you, we, we will not see that like in our lifetime again until sort of a post-bubble art world happens. Because of the frenzy, because of the money, because everyone is sort of drowning in cash.
0: Well, and the boards of the museums are all made up of the people who have a vested interest in, in what's happening in the, in the museum as well, too.
1: Yeah, and as somebody, I think I read a statistic that's probably already two years old that said that basically 75% of all museum programming of contemporary art comes from the same six galleries. Yeah, huge galleries. Well, they're all, yeah, but what I just, call big box galleries. They're yeah. the Home Depot of the art world.
0: I want to go further into this, but I don't want to lose the track of music. We didn't leave music. <laughs> 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 We've been so, talking about music all along, haven't we?
1: <laughs> so you had a band. I did. My band was called InfraDig. And what I did was I went to electric, Electronic Arts Intermix and I bought time on a drum machine because percussion is sort of the only instrument I ever mastered. And I created drum tracks that went along with, um, that, that could be used as accompaniment for um, covers of sort of obscure late 50s R&B, like pre-rock and roll R&B, I, you know, Yeah, songs by I don't know Big Mama Thornton or people like that, and I was trying to get that drum track so that I could vocalize over it. Um, And so I created a number of like home taping experiments in which I would use the drum track and then vocalize, and then like on an eight-track recorder or what were you doing? No, I didn't have an eight-track recorder. I had a home cassette player. That's amazing. But but it had a copying. Thing. So, you could copy, remember people copying cassettes? Yeah, I did. Yeah, sure, I did it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, what I could do is take what I had and then mic into that, like cut the mic into it as it was being um, copied in real time. And there were no effects, there was nothing. It was just simply to understand what my voice sounded like and understand what kind of a song structure I was trying to get at. What you were building. What I was building. And then I, I became acquainted with William Buzinski, who's now well known electronic music. Um, composer, but at that time he was Billy Buzinski, um, the partner of James Elaine, and uh, James, Billy was a sax player, and he loved he loved the same kind of music I loved, which was sort of this kind of African American blues driven sort of 40s and 50s electric music, the early le- music that you know had a whole era before Elvis <laughs> recorded his first song, and so we would do we started to develop covers. It would be basically the two of us. And a tape recorder that had the drum tracks recorded on them, and I would like press play, and it would be like tick 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 tick, and mm. then would, you know, and then the song would explode. Oh my god! And we did a few performances. We, we rehearsed a lot, and then did a few performances at places like APC. Um, well, we do it as a as a as a duo, mostly APC that oh, APC and the Limbo Lounge, yeah. bo- both long forgotten uh, East Village clubs, and a songwriter who was also a friend of a friend, uh, came to see us because this friend had come to see us and said, I think Gordon should hear this. So Gordon Minette came to one of our performances and he became the third member of the band. And his idea was, I want to write songs, I want them to be originals, and I want live players. Yeah. And so he recruited a, a, a drummer, Tony Mangurian, who later did a lot of touring with Bob Dylan and, and other musicians. Gordon is now a successful um, jingles Composer, really? Yeah, all of my former collaborators have gone on to pretty wonderful careers uh, in music. But we spent about five years. um,
0: That's a long time.
1: Gigging and making records. I mean, about three years in. About three years in, Billy left. So after the first recording, Billy became William, and then went on to the career that he, he has today. And we recorded a second recording with a different lineup, with this time with a live bass player and a horn section. So we had a we were doing a whole lot of kind of very ambitious uh songwriting and production and for me it was an opportunity of ex, you know great creative expression. The downside was that I was beginning <laughs> to realize after about the 3rd year myself that I wasn't even that interested in being a musician. It was weird. You know how like yeah, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. many millions of American children, kids, I think teenagers and even young adults are face the same problem where you don't know what else can i be in life except a rock star but i really don't want to take music lessons or (laughs) actually no i don't want
0: to take the time to practice and do all those things yeah yeah
1: so i have a decent singing voice but it was untrained and you can't do 45 minute rock gigs with 14 or 15 songs without blowing your voice out if it's not trained right and at a certain point it was becoming clear to the other guys in the band that dan was like off on his figuring out other things. Well, yeah, they all knew I had this, career. you know, like we would go out. I mean, this is a funny time, but we would go out for, I remember one time where we had a practice and we went to a, a bar on Broadway in Soho and Jeff Koons walked in. And at that time, Jeff Koons was beginning to be known at least two of the people at the table besides me knew what he well, you know, who yeah. he was. And, you know, Jeff was like, oh, hey, can come on over, have a drink. And we all talked and he was like, oh, you're Dan's band. You know, I've heard about Dan's band, and there's this chatter, and then you know Jeff Koons got up and left, and I think that was the first point where it occurred to the You're other like, people. They were like, you have another career. Or, no, or, or rather that I was so much further along in, my, wow. uh, in this other career, and that sooner or later, my desire to make music or to be part of a band would take another form, as yeah. it did. Um, in 1987, so sort of when we were still together, but when it was starting to... Out a little bit. Yeah. Um, I went to my first jazz fest in New Orleans and I think New Orleans introduced me to this to a state of mind in which being a fan is as active a position as being a player. Well
0: and did I see the other day you haven't missed a jazz fest in how many years? Since
1: 1987. That's unbelievable. I've been to every jazz fest in New Orleans for the last 29 years.
0: I don't I, I don't think I've ever told you this. I used to run sound at a bar in Iowa when I was going to college. Um, but I ran sound and I had the opportunity to hang out with like Link Ray and Sun Seal and Taj Mahal.
1: Oh, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: You didn't. So, uh, I had these long conversations in like the green room with like Link Ray and he was incredibly sweet and generous and him and his, uh, wife were really great to me. And then Sunseal too, I was talking about going up to Chicago to sort of move up there and he was like, if you come up, I will hook you up with, uh figuring out what you want to do up there and just really great, generous people. And it was amazing to like listen to them play and watch them and be in this was a tiny venue. They were running uh they were running a mono channel. It wasn't even in stereo in this tiny little thing in like the uh the university
1: uh hall. So it was on campus. Wow. <laughs> Crazy, right? <laughs> no, that was University of Iowa, not Iowa State. Iowa State.
0: It was Iowa State.
1: In Iowa Iowa City. No, well, State uh, is I was in, at Ames outside of oh, in Ames, Ohio. Okay. So that Iowa, was, the, that yeah, was yeah. the club.
0: I also ran sound for like Cake and Digital Underground <laughs> and like all these other like random things. I think it was one of those things that you like as you're traveling through going to Chicago or wherever else, you needed a place to play like in between. So they booked some amazing talent that came through there and we always packed that place. It was really fantastic.
1: Well, and I, I, I continue to feel that, you know, being a music fan and following especially new developments in music is, is, um, it, it goes hand in hand with being, with having that relationship to contemporary art. Yeah. I mean, if you're not following what's changing in contemporary art and what's new and you know, where the, where the current developments are, you're going to lose track. You're what, not going to have the bigger picture. And I think music's very similar.
0: So when you, when you're following music, what are you looking, are you looking at jazz? Are you looking at blues? You're looking at everything probably, but like, what are you, what are you really interested in now?
1: I have such broad you do case, right it's it's crazy I mean I will listen to you know I mean I my favorite <laughs> I mean it's uh, like everyone else um you know my favorite album last year was t- you know to pimp a butterfly I mean I think that's like a masterpiece of contemporary music but I've also been listening to a lot of bluegrass and I've also been listening to you know like um I've been listening to Turkish psychedelic music from the 60s and 70s uh, as i said i have my iTunes on So shuffle. it's on yeah. So whenever i find something i'm like wow, wow. i haven't listened to that in a long time. Where it's do you fantastic. go to like
0: where do you go to research or find out find your new music?
1: I get a lot of it at home. Uh, my partner Martin is a uh, buys i would say an average of a CD a day. Where is he? Wow. <laughs> and, he, and it's still in CD form. So I get a lot of music actually from us talking about things and seeing things, and then he'll go out and get it. And then whenever I'm in New York, there's a really tall pile of CDs there waiting for me to burn onto my
0: um, laptop. Well, this is like, I mean, it's like exactly what you say about art too. Once you have like sort of this broad scope, your reach sort of even extends further. If you take the time to sort of start looking at those things in more depth, all of a sudden it's
1: easier to go, keep going further and further out. And in addition to that, everywhere I go... Where I'm working curatorially, I'm also trying to find a connection to the music. So I'm working on this project in Chile, in this island off of the Patagonian coast of Chile, and doing anything there that connects with culture requires, as it did in New Orleans, intersecting with the music world. You, you, you know, who are the musicians? What are they doing? Where? What's the style of the music? Where does it come from? And wh- how does it connect with people's lives? You know, yeah. which are a set of questions we don't ask ourselves enough in the contemporary art world. I
0: think no, at all. You know, bomb. I have a copy of it sitting on here. It's like one of the few magazines where that, those conversations actually do
1: come up every once in a while, too. They always have. BOM is very consistent, I think, in trying to look at art from a cultural Expand
0: sort of that, that footprint. Um, okay, so let's go back into... That's amazing. Thank you. Uh, let's go back into curatorial. Sure. Um, specifically, uh, I wanted to talk about your... Sc- what we were talking about this very wide range in this sort of, before we started talking uh, and recording just the volume of work that you're doing. But to me, what, what strikes me is really, really interesting as I was going through all your shows and then I was looking at the past ones um, there. They always start out as this is the first museum exhibition, or this is the first time this has been shown in the States. You've always taken an approach where you were doing something that necessarily wasn't on anybody's radar to begin with, but things that were, uh, I don't want to say cutting edge, but also, uh, uh, challenging to the viewer. I'm looking at extended sensibilities here. Um, homosexual presence in contemporary art. And nobody was talking about that at that time, really. Right. I mean, outside of the artists.
1: I would go even further and to say there was a lot of in energy invested in not talking about that. Okay, this is at the New Museum, too, just to set the. Can you talk a bit about that? About Extended Sensibilities. Yeah, sure.
0: and about producing that show at that time.
1: Well, again, I, so I moved to New York in the fall of 79, basically right after getting out of, of, of college. And I wanted to find a place where what i aspired to as a curator was happening you know and at that time it was the same it's the same museums that it is today um and the only place i was finding it was the new museum you know that was the you know that was the institution that did bad painting you know and bad painting was a you know another one of those shows that just had huge repercussions uh in the contemporary art world and also in the world of kind of museum practice people forget
0: that though that wasn't
1: like yeah, no, today, no. People don't really remember that. They show, have no think, idea. Clearly, but bad painting was sort of a first shot across the bow that Marcia Tucker took, three years after starting the new museum, and not more, not more than two years in its home, which at that time was on 14th Street and Fifth Avenue in the lobby of the New School. So everything that the new museum was doing was about taking the conventions of museum practice and turning it on its head, just reversing whatever the expectations were, doing the opposite of what other museums were, were doing. And it was a fabulous formula. I mean, bad painting, would, it says it all in two words. Why would a museum want to promote bad painting? But was well, well, we know, that's not what was going on. What the museum was doing was questioning conventions of quality. And what painting and painti- is. And what painting is. And trying to undermine those pre-established ideas about what constitutes value or quality. And specifically in institutions. Specifically in institutions, and specifically at that time with figurative art, because almost everybody in that exhibition was a figurative artist. And, you know, the the kind of the um, change, the overthrow that Philip Gustin, say, had initiated by reintroducing figuration from a more avant-garde or, or cutting-edge perspective— that hadn't quite taken root then. So you could still present artists, you know, as Marsha did in, in Bad Painting, who today you wouldn't even understand why that would be thought of. As considered Bad Painting. Exactly. Uh, primitive or, or crude or, or um, technically inept, yeah. which I think were some of the descriptions that were applied really to the work at the time. Right, because it was a new vocabulary. It was a new way of, of thinking about, you know, what happens mm-hmm. when your brush hits the canvas? Well, well, how does all that fit together.
0: I want to go into talking about uh, about Marcia Tucker further, but like just to a point being made there, Marcia Tucker was fired from the Whitney essentially because of a Richard Tuttle show. Exactly.
1: And it was a Richard Tuttle show that if you look at the photos today it looks perfect. It Benign looks just compared breathtaking. to taking yeah. I mean she did an exquisitely sensitive job of of taking what his work was about and really applying it to the museum. But it was
0: so avant garde at the time that like how could that possibly be like this curator must be off the wall? And then she went and started the new
1: museum out of that. Okay. But let's, let's, let's dig a little deeper though, Jason, because what we see in that situation is once an institution is established as having to do with the mainstream or even, even established as a bureaucracy, it will resist change and art, as we know cannot move forward without constant self transformation. Excuse me. Uh, and so, what Marcia was doing was what a, a responsible curator should have been doing in that situation, which was, you know, the Whitney was essentially a contemporary art museum. I mean, Hopper, at the time the museum was started, was a contemporary artist. So, everything the museum was known for that was credible was New in the service art. of contemporary art. And, and Marcia had been a fantastically successful curator at that time. Um, she was shows. there
0: 67 to 76. Exactly, and she
1: did wonderful, wonderful long time. projects. Yeah, um, it was just about the same amount of time I was at the new museum. Um, not to make too too bald a comparison, but she was booted out because she did a good job, you know, because she was successful in in positioning contemporary art in a way that stirred, you know, discourse and, and conversation and made people. Got some people riled up, and then got other people defending the sort of how vanguard much of,
0: position. How much of that has to do with the fact she was a woman too?
1: I would have to say some of it has to right. do with the fact that she was she was a woman um, and extremely articulate. And she was, you know, Marsha was a rebel. Marsha, you know, wore a leather jacket and rode motorcycles. She was she was badass, and she was very conscious of the fact that you know I am I am a woman with a PhD. Um, I'm Jewish, and I want to do important things in the art world, um, but I am not going to behave the way you might think that okay. a curator in my position should let's, behave. So let's keep going on, on Marsha, because Marsha is the one who hired you at the new museum, right? Yeah, 12 years after Extended Sensibilities, she gave me a job. She gave me the first job that I had since leaving the 9 to 5 world 11 years earlier.
0: She is, and we were talking about this before, before we started recording, she's a, a, an incredibly important figure that I think doesn't get enough recognition today. She died in
1: uh, 2006, and she was young, too. She was only in her 60s. Yes. Um, She had cancer, and the reason she retired when she did was because she knew she needed to devote her energies and time to just taking care of herself.
0: So what was it like to work with her at the museum, and like, what... Tell, tell me
1: a bit about her. I mean, you've already sort of stated it, but... Well, to be honest, I mean, the Marsha that I worked alongside for four and a half years um, wasn't the Marsha of her glory days. She had already been running the museum for, um, for close to 20 years, like 18 years, something like that. And, you know, to be honest, she was tired because the vision that she had realized, which by all measures was a successful one, uh, required a that she have the position of director and that as director which is B and in, in the tougher role the survival of the institution was her personal responsibility so board relations fundraising tedious. grant writing administrative thing, you know human resources hiring for all that stuff which was not the stuff that she loved was nonetheless what she had to do to keep it going and i think that you know her curatorial work got a little bit soft, you know, towards the end. It got a little bit sloppy, but I think that was because she had been trying to multitask in a way that She's was doing almost impossible. I think I think we can kind of acknowledge the United States today, with a museum, with an institution, it's almost impossible to direct it and do the creative programming. You probably I, shouldn't. You probably shouldn't, and if you're doing it for too long, there's there's probably a problem. Um, I think we know of examples of institutions where that's actually taken place. I don't know what you're talking about. But (laughs) but it's something I learned very quickly with Prospect New Orleans, which, you know, I was the artistic director and I was the founder, but I was also the executive director. So payroll was on me. I mean, if we were in debt, I had to clear up the debt. I had to work with the board, work with whomever was available or foundations and say... We need this. We, you know, can, well, you, can you cut us another check for $100,000? This, this you know, that, that's not the job that the curator necessarily is prepared to do when they start out on an exhibition project. Well, this is another
0: incredibly ambitious project, but um, I want to talk about prospect a little bit, but I want to get back to extended sensibilities because we didn't explain sort of what that was and, and why it was
1: relevant and important at the time in you putting that together at the museum. Well, So I had been volunteering at the new museum. I said I want to do whatever I can to for these people to let me hang around. So I was essentially um, typing envelopes on an IBM Selectric in a little corner um, of the museum. And Marsha was the kind of person that was really attracted to young people and, and new ideas and energy. And she liked the passion I was demonstrating. She liked the fact that I wanted to be a curator and that I wanted to experiment. And so she asked me to make a proposal to the museum. I mean, I was like three, that, three that, years out of undergraduate. That is Crazy, crazy. No, it's totally crazy, but she did, and I gave two proposals, and one of them was Extended Sensibilities, which was an exhibition that looked at gay and lesbian sensibility, what we later would call identity uh, in contemporary art, how it's manifested and what the history of it is. Well, the
0: idea that you even put that together, like thought about putting that together in in the institution too, coming three years out of university is
1: really incredible. And I was warned repeatedly um, I lost track of the amount of time that people said, you know, if you want to have a career being a curator, do not do this exhibition. Really? Do not do this because nobody wants this stuff dragged out into public. Remember, this is pre-AIDS. So, Oh, were, no, it is pre-AIDS. It I is didn't pre-AIDS. Realize that. Yeah. Um, the first documented cases of AIDS happened while the show was running. So it was wow. really a very dicey thing. And at that point... People had a lot of reasons or a lot of rationale for never being public about their sexual identity. You know, it's a, it was really a different era, Jason. And, and AIDS, for all the tragedy and, and, and destruction that it caused, created a crisis in gay culture, in, in gay America, where being in the closet was really, really problematic if you wanted to survive. And really? if you wanted your friends to survive. Oh, yeah. You had to, everyone had to now be absolutely clear that there could not be any shame or stigma or desire to hide on the part of gay people because we were dying in, in, in droves. I mean, in, in, in huge waves. You know, hundreds, thousands of people were dying. And, and so it, it be, being out became a political act. You had to. To you support will, everybody else. Not only did you had to, but a lot of well-meaning people felt it was important to drag other people out of the closet, which is where outing became sort of a, a, a part of the culture, where people were basically saying, you know, Roy Cohn is gay. You, know, <laughs> you, you have to understand that these people who commit terrible evil in American society, you know, part of the reason for why they're so messed up, maybe because of the fact that they're leading a double life. They're repressed. And 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 their real desires and their real sexual lives are happening in secret, and they have to verbally... It's like Dennis Hastert. Dennis Hastert had to promote the most vicious anti-LGBT legislation he could possibly get away with in the house while he was paying off his former wrestling students' hush money to keep his sexual molestation of them quiet. That's the society we (laughs) lived in at that time, and so... My exhibition didn't really change much in terms of the identity issue, but what it did change within the art world was the idea that your identity can be the source of your work. I mean, today it's obvious that Gilbert and George or Scott Burton's work come out of being gay. I mean, it's, it's, that's that, that, pardon me, that life experience has forged a path that caused them to make certain decisions and choices that they made along the way in their art. And I think that that's kind of. You know, uh, today that's an accepted idea. It's not only accepted, it's just a cliche practically. It's a norm. You know, we have so much art now that's connected to identity in so many different levels and and possibilities that um, I think back then the idea that if you're gay, you might want to make certain kinds of artistic references and historical forms and not even shapes and colors, but there there might be legacies that you're drawing off of, that you're aware of. You know, so artists sort of saying, well, I come out of Romaine Brooks, you know, which one of our artists was like, yeah, Romaine Brooks is my hero. Well, no one at the time even knew who Romaine Brooks was except for lesbian art historians. Today, she, it, she's a, she's an accepted part of the canon, but that's, you know, taken time. So what I found was that I was doing something that I was not supposed to do as a curator. I was being told that this was um, dangerous and could be self Prejudic- prejudicial in terms of my career. And it was a controversy. There was clearly a controversy. A lot of people attacked the show. A lot of people supported the show. How did Marcia take it? Marcia was very, very pleased. Marcia was very pleased. And she did something which I was... I mean, to this day, I have to say is... You know, you say that it's extraordinary, and I agree with you, that she invited me to submit a proposal in the first place. What was even more amazing was that the curators on staff at that time were... Alan Schwartzman, Ned Rifkin, and Lynn Gumpert. And they were all under strict orders from Marsha to not interfere with my curatorial process Holy at shit. all. Holy shit. They were not to make suggestions. They were not to approach me and let and you say, just work through it. Yeah, they weren't to say, oh, have you thought about including this artist? Or do you really think that Because it would, is have, worth it would have it? fucked you up. It would have like,
0: put you on a different path, probably.
1: I would have collapsed. I would have fallen apart. And she could see it. She just knew how, That's what I mean, I mean she, she saw, she saw that I was a sensitive guy and, <laughs> and, and she saw that I was starting out, that I had, that I was you dead that serious freedom. about what I wanted to do, but I didn't have the confidence. That is crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it, it's a but lesson it, but that it, I've it, kind of carried through life because <laughs> I've tried to mentor a lot of young curators along the way. And I think it's very important to say to a young curator when they're starting out, don't listen to anybody <laughs> after a certain point once you've started your process be true to yourself because if not you won't recognize but the it's outcome. so
0: difficult to 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 have that confidence in what you're doing as an artist or a curator and that type of thing and like not listen to the outside voices not very many
1: people can get through that no you can't but i i think i'm a firm believer also in the philosophy of failing in public you know you have to you have to flop yes especially at the beginning Yeah, Um, because then you really understand not just that you have to improve your approach, but also that failing and enduring failure is a very critical part in the process of self growth.
0: Thinking about these ideas of failure and everything too, you and I—I did the math. We've known each other for ten years now. Mm -hmm. Um, We met at SVA when you were you were teaching there, and I was going to graduate school. And I always felt incredibly fortunate to have gotten that relationship out of SVA because you were very, very generous with all the things you did. But you talking about the things that you're saying now too, I'm I'm understanding some of the conversations that we had back then in a new light today because of this. Like you you saying that you have to fail in public and do those things. I mean, I, I think I failed spectacularly in grad school. Like the work I was making is not the work I'm making now. And I didn't can start making the work I was making now until maybe five years ago, but it took me that time to figure out where I was and sort of understanding my own work. You were always supportive and available when a lot of other people weren't. Hmm. I mean, it,
1: that always stood out for me. That's interesting. I mean, I'm not really aware of that, but you know, once you were no longer my student, Jason, then, you be, then, you, then I took your student card and I <laughs> put it over into another <laughs> slot, which is, you know, these are the artists of who are working today. Well, no, I, I realize <laughs> that, but that was a, like... It's kind of, it's kind of automatic. <laughs>
0: well, but not for, not for a lot of people. So, Perhaps. Yeah, I think it's, it's a different thing. Like not a, a lot of people do that, but like it's always, it's always stood out to me.
1: Um, but that's one of the things that extended sensibilities taught me is that I'm not... I also don't benefit when I compare my practice to others. It's not a constructive process for me. Yeah. To say so-and-so did this and they did it this way. Why didn't I do this this way, you know, or why, you know, I did it because you gain nothing from it. You really comparison is death in any circumstance, but in, in, in especially in the field of what I do, you, you really need to go out on a limb sometimes. In fact, I prefer at you, some point going out on limbs. You over do it and over again. It's kind of become my thing. I don't like repeating anything, and I do like trying new things. I like experimenting.
0: So let's talk about one of those experiments, the uh,
1: 2003 Istanbul Biennial. Well, that was an unbelievable experience because they called me about three months after the 9-11 attacks. So I had been a fan of the Istanbul Biennial for some time. I had found artists who I'd been working with ever since at my first couple of visits to the Istanbul Biennial. Um, but after 9-11, uh, I couldn't go. You know, I was, the, the opening was September 14th. 2001 and I was due to be on a plane not maybe not the 11th but the 12th or something like that yeah. of course everything was canceled and you know people were you know you we all remember what, yeah. what life was like at that time and I sent my apologies I said I'm sorry we're just we're stuck I won't we're in able- lockdown yeah and I, and I probably won't be able to come later in the month or later than by any I'm sorry I'm just gonna have to miss this round and you know a couple months later I get an email from them saying We've just been meeting, and we'd like to invite you to be the curator of the next Istanbul Biennial. And, you know, after nine eleven, I became one of those bleeding-heart liberals that was doing everything in my power to prevent Islamophobia from taking root in our society because there were a lot of very ignorant people who were trying to uh, tar Muslims in particular with a kind of an onus, with a kind of an inherent vice – that, you know, resulted in something like the 9-11 attacks. And, you know, we know that one of the tragic results of that was the invasion of Iraq, which happened a few months before my biennial opened. So I wound up making an exhibition called Poetic Justice, which was inspired almost entirely by the lies coming out of the Bush administration at that time with respect to American foreign policy. Were you that overt about explaining that during the... The process? Well, let me give you an example. Well, first of all, everybody in Turkey knew what I was saying with the title, because we're talking about a highly literate society in which poetry is used very often to um, create a kind of a cover or a, um, a way of masking certain political ideas to communicate the transmission of certain political ideas. And so I was able it wasn't very difficult, but I was able to basically get that idea across that justice as an absolute concept, was something that the United States was pushing very hard at that time, that all the world must conform to our idea of what justice is, so that you can get behind us while we crush Saddam Hussein and his regime. And that was such obvious garbage in, yeah. in every, every way, shape, or form that I had to go back and say, well, no, I'm not trying to say all justice is relative, but there is some point on that spectrum where you have to recognize that there are cultural perspectives to be brought into any discussion of justice. It's
0: not black and white.
1: Correct. And, and, and at the time that I was writing my essay for uh, the catalog was the period in which we were getting ready to invade Iraq, which is, of course, a neighbor of, of Turkey. And I, had, I didn't have Iraqi artists in the exhibition, but I had Iranian artists. I mean, I had a lot of Middle Eastern artists in the show, and everybody, everybody was appalled at the mistake, this huge, colossal, intentional mistake, self-willed error uh, that the United States was making at that time. And so I wound up writing most of my text about the falseness of our argument, the United States argument in making this case, because it fit right into the show. So there was a period in which 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq was a constant moving subtext beneath the entire exhibition. Uh, But at the same time, you know, I was facing a situation where, you know, because it was 550 years after the fall of Constantinople, I was suddenly being approached by these uh, cultural officials in Istanbul saying, would you like to use the Hagia Sophia? You know, it is our greatest architectural landmark. Oh, my gosh. It is our greatest cultural treasure. (laughs) And because it is a landmark year, we would like to have contemporary art uh, presented in it. And then you know, six months later, I'm having a situation where Aria Russjumrinsuk, the Thai artist who at that time was doing a lot of um, work involving uh, poetry that she would read to corpses that she found in the city morgue, and so I wanted to present that work in, the, in that in the Agape Sophia. Well, yeah, because I you know, if you look at her work from a Buddhist perspective, it's pretty apparent what the ideas she's 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 going after in that body of work. And, uh, uh, you know, but we had people in Istanbul above the foundation who were completely freaked out. Horrified by it. Yeah. Well, no, they were horrified because as far as they were, they could see the Islamist administration of Erdogan, who had just recently been elected prime minister. They could see where it was going. Yeah, And their thing was like, if... The Agia Sophia is saying that they'll let you show this work now. That's only because next week they're going to change the director and put in a new one who will prohibit it. So why don't we save everybody the problem and move the work from the Hagia Sophia? And I was like, well, no. Why don't we continue to work with the people who are there as long as they're saying we can present this work? And then if we get banned, we'll just work with the artist and find another place to present it. Yeah. I don't want to peremptorily pull it out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so these kinds of things were happening. And, and afterwards, when there was time to reflect, I was just reminding myself what an extraordinary so what happened moment that? that was in. What happened with that then, that specific piece? Her work was presented in the Hagia Sophia. Did it, it was, get pulled? No, no, no. It did fine. There were no complaints. No, the, <laughs> no, the guys. No, in fact, the, I mean, I wasn't meeting with, you know, religious leaders, but it was clear that I was meeting with some conservative types. Yeah. And they thought it was beautiful. I thought that that Buddhist because there is a beauty to it. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody has to learn about Christianity, but you know, not many people take time to learn about Buddhism. And I think that because these guys, they weren't theologians, but they had an interest, and they were like, "Well, this is this is like a ceremony. This is a this is a spiritually sincere." and meaningful gesture, and, and therefore it is not only welcome, it is appropriate for, for this space. Even though the Hagia Sophia has stopped being a mosque centuries ago and is just a cultural site, the history of its religious application is, is, permeates the space in every way, shape and form. No, they were thrilled, they were delighted. It was the people who were funding the exhibition yeah. who were saying, oh my God, there's a double cross coming. You know, somebody's going to stab our poor, naive American curator in the <laughs> back and I was saying, I'm not that naive, and what if they don't? <laughs> what, yeah. if, what if they say yes and they mean yes? And Isn't about, it worth taking that? Think address? about this amazing thing we could do. Think of how extraordinary that piece would be, the presence that it would hold yeah. in, in this particular space. How did that uh, biannual influence the rest of the work you did coming out of that? It was the first time borrowing an exhibition that I'd done uh, in the late nineties around ninety five in, in Limerick, Ireland, it was the first time that I had done a multi venue exhibition. Oh, really? Where I was where I was making an ex a single exhibition that was spread out around many, many different sites throughout the city. And uh I've you know, that's the way the Istanbul Biennial has always been, and so I was aware that it, that was the way it was gonna be. But then the experience of doing it, you know, and kind of Running to this place and watching how the artists are developing their installations and then jumping in a taxi and going to this other place and checking. You know, it just I was just like, wow, we are we're like weaving the city together. Contemporary art is becoming this web that connects all these different points and and references within the city. Yeah, including we had about ten different projects that weren't insights, they were out in the middle of nowhere.
0: So this leads you directly into Prospect New Orleans.
1: It absolutely did. Because when it's the same thing. It, it is the same thing. And it was, it, wasn't, it was only because I had done that in Istanbul that I could actually go to people in New Orleans after Katrina and after the idea of prospect had emerged, had, had been birthed, that I said, look, this is what I did in 2003. It's more or less the same template. We're going to try to do something very, very similar but the idea is that all the cultural institutions are coordinating and everything is one show. It's one big exhibition. It's just spread out all over the city. Uh, and, you know, And they're, they're remarkably similar cities in so many ways. I mean, both of them exist on a crescent and a river that connects a larger body of water, and they've been known as ports. I mean, their identity comes from being a port cities where people from other cultures come and do business and exchange yeah. things. And so I, I just, yeah, I, I more or less took the one... Idea and replicated it in New Orleans in a post-catastrophe situation where, I guess, again, one of the advantages we were faced with was the fact that all the museums we were approaching had canceled their programs anyway. So they needed exhibitions. They needed exhibitions, and they were open to the idea that it could be free. Our approach to them was, we will give you this programming, kind of world-class programming, and we will come in and we'll install it Oh, and we'll provide free security and we'll provide transportation for people around the city to get to your place. In return, you have to be open on these hours. You have to be open on these days. And it has to be free. And you cannot charge admission. You have to suspend your admission.
0: It's pretty fantastic.
1: It worked. It was, um, you know, it was a success in that, you know, people came to New Orleans and they found other things to do with their money. 80 artists, 24 venues. It was a lot of work. It was a lot. And it was also a lot of fundraising. You know, we started, I realized what I was going to do probably about five months after Katrina, because I went to New Orleans in January 2006. And the floods had been end of August, beginning of September of 2005. So the city was destroyed when I was there. It was in just awful condition. And I became, I went to a town hall meeting, kind of a big meeting. And I was up on a kind of panel stage with um, Doug Brinkley of all people, who at that time was a historian at Tulane University. And the subject of the panel was, how does New Orleans culturally rebuild itself? And they had me in there as like an art world, as a New York art world insider, who had experience doing international art exhibitions and who was insanely in love with New Orleans. Had you bought your house
0: down there yet? No, no, no,
1: no, that that was, I bought my house in 2007. So it took me all of 2006 to figure out how this was going to happen. I mean, there were so many false starts, you just would not believe it. And then at the meantime, I'm also, I mean, fortunately, the new museum is closed, so I can kind of take my time deciding exactly what I'm going to do and when I'm going to announce it. And then by the fall of 2006, I had the promise of the first uh, gift of the first seed funding funding, which came from Toby L- Devin Lewis. And she agreed to not just give us a half a million dollars to jumpstart this project, but that she would pledge a half a million dollars to the next four editions of Prospect. Um, So that every time a Prospect closed and paid off its bills, boom, there would be a half a million dollars to get the next one um, going. And she has been good to her word the whole time. Amazing, amazing visionary. Uh, But that allowed me to then go out and rent a place, hire staff, get some consultant fundraising. Because you had the the cash to do it to begin with, yeah. We had cash. And we could basically say, you couldn't hire a development person because we were a startup. But we could sign a contract with a consulting development firm who created a fundraising calendar, a strategy for us where it's like, okay, first you hit the public, you know, sources. Then you hit the corporate sources and the foundations. And then you go to the individuals and at the end you have a big gala. And hopefully all the money that you hopefully brought is a strategy. And in 18 months, we raised four and a half million dollars. Wow. That was before the crash. Oh, okay. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, and we ended up being socked with the debt anyway because of the crash. The crash, Lehman Brothers collapsed in October, I think, of 2007. And we opened Prospect on Halloween. So that essentially affects how you go into the next prospect. After that, then too, very much, very much. We had to pay off a debt, and then we had to begin fundraising again in the 2009 economy, which was the most tightened, restricted, (laughs) fear-driven, you know, recession-weighted period in our economy in the last, you know, decade at least. Those those years. So those were the years of the greatest uncertainty. Uh, for, the, for the country, for the world as a whole. And yet I, didn't, I had to not just pay off our debt, I had to get the fundraising started to do the for the next. next one, which is why it got postponed, which is why Prospect is now probably a triennial instead of a biennial. Because with no other bricks and mortar presence and with no other programming initiatives, reality struck us in, to, you know, we, to the effect that we realized that that's how long it takes to raise the money to create the infrastructure and then to present the show. you If you try to do it in two years, you'll it, make yourself crazy. And it, it may not happen. And it might not happen. So mm. now, it's, now it's moved on very well. But I learned the Marsha lesson, which was don't get burned out in an executive position. If what you're really trying to do is affect changes through artists, through, the, through, through inviting artists, through selecting artists, and then encouraging artists to do something crazy and experimental.
0: But what's funny about that is you learn the Marsha lesson from doing it, not from watching her do it.
1: (laughs) Well, her... I mean, you know, I loved Marsha, so her... I mean, her pain and discomfort were pretty evident at the time. Yeah. And they were being manifested in ways that weren't necessarily contributing to the most wonderful work environment. But nonetheless, you looked at Marsha as just sort of this amazing person, and what you wanted to do was soften her exit, you know, make her exit as painless as possible yeah um so she actually left the premises she unpacked she left like literally two weeks before lisa phillips arrived and of course i was the one who spearheaded lisa i was the one who was kind of saying to the board and to the search committee and to the staff lisa phillips is the person we want as marcia tucker's um replacement and even though the first interview didn't go so well i kind of you know they said do you want to interview anyone else i said yeah bring lisa phillips back (laughs) because no one else was even nearly as good as she was in terms of a candidate. So it's, it's kind of amazing that going on 40 years now, I think the new museum is celebrating. There's been two, two. directors, two executives, directors. And, f- and it took at least a little while, but um, within a few years after starting, she also relinquished all desire to curate. Uh, she and I curated the Paul McCarthy show together, and yeah. we curated the Carol Dunham show together, and then that was it. We didn't do any more collaborative shows.
0: I have so many other things I wanna to talk to you about. We're running close to a time. I wanna be able to let you go,
1: but um, the last thing I wanted to ask about was what you're doing now. Well, so we just opened When Jackie Met Ethel, which yeah. was an exhibition for Howl Happening in the Lower East Side, and that's about the cultural legacy of Jackie Curtis and Ethel Eichelberger, who are really important figures to me as, as a kind of a lifetime resident of the East Village. Uh, Jackie was one of the original Warhol superstars but was, um, most importantly, a really revolutionary avant-garde playwright. But because Jackie was also a pioneering transsexual in a very public way, I believe that his work was trivialized. Um, He was considered this sort of exotic phenomenon. And, you know, I think the failure of people to recognize the seriousness, or at least the scope of his work, was one of the reasons he became a junkie and then died accidentally of a heroin overdose in 85. Ethel Eichelberger hit the scene right around that time, and, and they, I did see Ethel a lot. They didn't know is, each other either, right? They didn't really know each other. They seemed to have been glancing acquaintances. Um, the executor of Jackie's estate, uh, his cousin Joey Preston, confirmed that Ethel Eichelberger's name and number was in Jackie Curtis's address book. Oh. <laughs> so they so somebody had introduced him at some point. But what seemed remarkable to me was that Ethel Eichelberger, who's also a pioneering um, you know, transgender artist, but also... A pioneer in a certain way of creating cabaret theater and and there was a obviously gay sensibility that, that ties them together as well and so I wanted to make an exhibition that was really difficult to make about these figures who were and I guess the fourth the other thing I need to mention is that they were really important muses to the artists of their time so Peter Hujar who's maybe the greatest photographer of that era photographed both Jackie Curtis and Ethel Eichelberger uh, extensively. Uh, And he was friends with both of those figures and artistic collaborators with both of them. And so I I made the exhibition partly about uh, video documentation that exists of the actual theater pieces, and then a lot of photography, a lot of paraphernalia that we borrowed from the La Mama a collection on Fourth Street.
0: Have those theater pieces been restaged, or a
1: couple of them have been. They try to revive uh, "Vain Victory," which was Jackie's first hit, um, about every ten years or so. Uh, but there's like an, Off Broadway, or what? Well, it's always yeah, it's always a La Mama, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sta- kind of venue. And um, and Ethel Eichelberger's work is being revived. There's actually a, a number of smaller groups that are that are bringing back certain works. And his last piece, uh, "Das Vidanya Mama." was presented last year by a a graduate school, uh, sorry, graduate class at Pratt Institute that was being directed in, in, that was about directing and playwriting. So that exhibition was really a challenge because of all the historical research and all the digging around I had to do to get things, but wonderfully, wonderfully fulfilling uh, because it brought together this downtown group that was already inherently affiliated with the space that I was working with, yeah. that was very much in support of actors and, 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 and experimental theater. So I've done that. I'm working on the Biennial in Cuenca, Ecuador, uh, which is the, now the 13th edition of the Binal de Cuenca. And I've invited 45 artists, including about 35, 30, maybe so about 32, who are Latin American and all the rest. There are five Americans actually in the show. And that opens October 21st. And then I'm guest curator now at the Palm Springs Art Museum for one of the Getty's uh, PST PST. shows. Uh, And it's a show called Kinesthesia, which is about Latin American kinetic art from 1954 to 1969. I've been fortunate enough to see that list of the artists, and it looks really amazing. I think the show's going to be mind-blowing. And it's, again, it's a challenge for me. I've been working in Latin America for probably 25 years in terms of research and and also making exhibit projects as well. But it's the first time I've done a historical uh, exhibition. I mean, you know, looking at past work. Yeah, not contemporary. Yeah, and what I really had to do is, is sort of like um, uh, earn my credibility from my South American colleagues who I'm counting on <laughs> for support and help and contributing of essays. And so the question in my own mind at the beginning of the project was are they going to even... Let me do this. Am I going to wind up making some horrible faux pas or some screw-up or some typical Yankee imperialist imposing of a point of view that's from the outside? And so what we've kind of worked on is is that because of the very particular nature of how Latin American artists lived in the 50s and 60s, by which I mean half of them went to Paris, uh, at least half of them working in that mode, there has never been a subject known as Latin American kinetic art because of this kind of division between where half the generation is in South America and half the, the generation in the is in Europe. Way, yeah. And so it's, um, it's been fun because people are basically letting me go ahead. They're, they're encouraging me to create this genre, this historical genre that up until now has not been named. It hasn't been identified as such. So in a way it's like, okay, it's historical, but I get to be experimental at the same time. What responsibility
0: too. That's amazing. It, it is a heavy
1: responsibility. Yes, it is. Because Um,
0: you're writing the context of how that will be viewed in the future for those individuals.
1: Yes, it's true. But it's also important to me that the exhibition happened in Southern California because this is the culture that gave us the light and space movement. And, you know, in the same way that the light and space movement was resisted by sort of the mainstream New York art world at the time, uh, these Latin American artists were resisted by the United States in general. They were huge stars everywhere else in the world, but very, not in the United States at all. And there are cultural and there are political reasons for that. But I thought, isn't it appropriate that those artists and their, um, and their followers in the next generation of the light and space movement will be the audience that really gets and connects with what right. these Latin American artists were doing, you know, 50 years ago? There's a real... I think there's an inherent uh, uh, capacity to grasp new technology, ideas about light and movement. It's L.A. It is L.A. It's, and it's, it's kind of LA. like metaphysics of this work is going to be really well received here.
0: Thank you for taking the time to come talk. And I can imagine uh, I'm going to want to have you back to talk about more
1: stuff later. So this was really fantastic. Oh, it's a really pleasure, Jason, as always. Thank you so much. Thank you.